this is Jared Karp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I got another great episode here uh, with another well-known legend in the ICS cybersecurity space. Um, I'm trying to collect as many of these pioneers as I can, and this is a this is another great uh, person to have on the show. Patrick Miller, currently the chief executive officer of Ampere Industrial Security, but also uh, many many other things. He's certainly a technologist. He is a father. He's a chef. He's a kayaker. We have some history there, although he's done it more recently than I have. We'll get into that, but I, mine's somewhat dated, but I uh, love to talk to him. We're going to ask you about that. Uh, but he is definitely a builder of communities, and that uh, resonates uh, also very strongly with me with what we're trying to do at CSA. And so um, having Patrick here and uh, talking to us today is uh, is just a real treat. So Patrick, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Honored to be here. Patrick, I always say the same thing at the beginning of the show, that cybersecurity people are modern day superheroes and all superheroes, as we know, have a backstory. So uh, what's your backstory? Where do, you, where do you come from? Well, I wasn't bitten by a spider or anything like that, but uh, yeah, I waited, backstory. I think you were dipped in some sort of vat of industrial uh, goop and that's what, you know, how you became right. you, but okay. <laughs> Backstory, you know, I, it's it's an interesting and long path. I didn't start out this way, but most of us I've, I've talked to in our field, we we didn't usually start out as uh, cybersecurity people. We just kind of ended up where we are now. Yeah, but I mean, I, I started out, I grew up in Oklahoma as a farm kid and then went from there. And I think there, I, I've seen the musical based on Oklahoma, so I know a lot about your upbringing, right? And is that is that fair or no? Windy. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's windy. The weather's terrible. You know, that kind of thing. You know, it's tall. Uh, well, awesome. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to sort of unpack your your journey. And I, I, it's got, you know, a theme in it that uh, is part of my journey, the entrepreneurship pieces of it, starting companies. Not every guest, you know, uh, there's obviously some amazing practitioners space that are that have been at companies and doing very important pieces of this puzzle. But yours is yours has got some some entrepreneurship in it. Um, I'm always curious in the very, very early any kind of early entrepreneurship experience or technology experience, you know, what, or job, you know, you know, that people sometimes have, I had a guest on recently said, yeah, my, my uncle had an industrial factory and I was like working with industrial equipment when I was 14, you know, so what's that primordial ooze phase of your life? Any, any of those themes uh, present that early? Yeah, I think uh, both my parents, they divorced when I was young, but both of them had their own kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Like they only have, they had their own companies and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of grew up with it. It's in the blood. You know, that's what I saw when I was growing up, and it seems just natural gravity. Yeah. What any uh, any sort of what, what was kind of your first work things you did uh, to, to uh, make? I guess like first pay job was like bucking hay on a farm. You know, but other than that, like my dad had a um, he came out of the military in com, and of course was with AT and T because it was like where all ex military comp folks went. And then AT and T got broken up, and he started his own phone company. Right, it's it's uh, everything from long distance to LEC, uh, you know, various different services. So I kind of grew up with that, and uh, I was you know the small. I had little hands, and I could put a flashlight in my teeth and crawl down this dank, dusty hole with asbestos and other things, and run a wire. Uh, so that was like the first job, you know, that was in in this space anyway. Yeah, yeah. That was super. I love it. I mean, you said you were working with, hey, I was mowing lawns. So, you know, I, I, I yeah, get it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's great. So um, and, and where does technology, does technology come into your life or, in, in, you know, in a formal way or informal way uh, early on or, and, or is schooling, you know, what, what do you go to pursue in schooling? Yeah, it was pre, I guess, official schooling. My dad was, I guess, did fairly well and got into, uh, got me like the first video games. Like when Pong came out, I was one of the first kids in the block to have Pong. 
and I got uh, various different computing platforms as they came out. So I, I was lucky enough to to get the technology as it came out in the early days. I had, you know, cut my teeth on a Commodore and all that good stuff. You know, Commodore so, 64, um, right? I had modem. Wrote my first programs in ASCII and actually did punch cards and I remember the teletype machines and all this yeah. good stuff. So I, I, since I was around the technology, it was just uh, kind of a natural gravity because you know we had a we had a telecom company, so I was I was around it all. Yeah, no, that's so yeah. that's a huge Im imprint early uh, in, in your life. Now I'm, I'm I'm about to probably get jealous. I had a 300 baud modem. Did you have one of these 1200 or 2400 baud modems? I I remember the 300 baud, but yes, I did have the 1200 baud. The early ones when they had you know 1200 bauds came out with a coupler. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I did not get to upgrade to that. Uh, I had the 300 baud modem. <laughs> Downloading uh, a game from a bulletin board was uh, an overnight an overnight project. Yeah, a multi-day project because somebody would have inadvertently lift up a phone, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so talk about school. What did you pursue uh, with the sort of, uh, you know, what was in your mind at the time? Yeah. You know, classic stuff. Um, nobody wants to do what their parents did when they're at that age, right? They don't realize the value and what they're getting uh, at, at that rebellious young age. So um, I was fascinated with uh, biology. So like actual schooling uh, is field in microbiology with a focus more on botany. I tried some of the field work with the zoology and other sciences. And honestly, running around at midnight with a headlamp on and you know bleeding animals in the field to look at their insides was, was not something that I was really interested in. Um, the geologists all would all go out and come back with like 70 to 100 pound bags of rocks. And I thought, okay, that's, that's lame. Though it's a fantastic science. You know, at the time I was like, I wanted something a little different. I got into the the, um, the other sides basically because it was it was I could spend more time working on it and less time like you know hucking around trying to get my science done. So um, I spent a lot of time in the lab and then most like I say I got through all the way up to like 124 hours uh, in college before I actually dropped out. Didn't finish. Uh, I was making enough money in tech and I was trying to do a senior capstone project that was using cutting edge technology. We were using basically some of the early debabilizing tools uh, for video resolution. And at the time, you know, to get, um, I was doing Aspen clones was one of my biology projects. So to get to term, to, Aspens are basically connected by the roots. They're not individual tree trunks. They're massive organisms that are all connected to the root. To tell where they intersect, like where one touches the other is challenging. So you usually have to do like a DNA sample or you got to climb up the tree and measure the branching angle or the little teeth on the leaf. This is all hard. So I was going to run a little red wagon around under these things using a camera and have the camera tell me when things were different. Well, it was too cutting edge and the professor didn't like it. And I put too much time in it. And I'm like, fine, this is um, too much effort. And I'm already making enough money in tech and I'm actually more interested in tech now. So I basically just moved into tech. Yeah, I like this because we you know, one of the CSA things is addressing sort of workforce issues. And so people are coming from lots of places. And I like that yeah. each of many of you on this show have had different origin stories, which is inspirational, I hope, to many of our listeners, which is I could get into cybersecurity from multiple original stories or, you know, start journey starts. And yours is yet another different biology. I don't think anybody said that before. But you had this interest early, you know, I, I love that you started where, you, you know, where we, where we did. You, you were working with computers, you're interested in it. It sounded like while you were going to school, you were also working in this technology. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was working with technology. Um, of course, you know, like, you know, waiting tables and other little odd jobs here and there. Yeah, yeah but I, mean, I, I grew up 
you know, in the outdoors. So I, I, that's where my biology background was like, I love the outdoors. I also like tech made good money and it was easy for me because it just came natural. And, you know, the other path, the academic path looked like it wasn't going to make as much money. And there were a lot of other stumbling blocks in the way there. So, and, you know, and I'm glad that you, you do this because the, I'm just give you some credit for what you're doing. You know, giving some of these origin stories for a lot of the security professionals out there, everything that you do leading up to when you decide to become a security professional will help you be a better security professional. I never would have thought that biology could help me, but it's helped me understand compartmentalization and system of system concepts, um, inoculants and viruses in different ways. So it's helped me tremendously and I wouldn't give it up for the world. So whatever your background is, it will help you do what you do as a security pro. I love you shared that. That's I'm always looking for these sort of gold nuggets. And I think that's your first word for the day. It's it's uh, you bring all this stuff forward and the security force of the future is going to be a fusion of people right from different backgrounds and different um, perspectives. And that's how we're going to solve a multi thorn, you know, multi dimensional problem, right, is going to be bringing those things together, building bridges between different constituents, communities, whatever you want to call it. I love that. That's that's great. Interdisciplinary to make a better security team without question. Well, that's great. So if you're listening and you have a history degree like me or a biology degree like Patrick, you too can be in the cybersecurity <laughs> industry. <laughs> well, for so, me, it's a lot of biology schooling degree. <laughs> so I'm reviewing sort of your your early years, and I see field service engineer, information technology consultant, information technology director, information security consultant. This is Portland General Electric. So prior to 2000. Mm-hmm. Is there security? Is security inter- intersected with you, or is it? It's all still technology based, and that's when security comes in, or or not? Yeah, security wasn't a thing back then. I mean, you I'm know, training. of course, I <laughs> right, right. I mean, formally, right, it wasn't like a job title. So I was, you know, of course, I was into the early days of all of the phone freaking, you know, because I had a lot of tech, and I happened to be part of a phone company. You know, we would go in, you know, back then. Phone systems were these big, back then they were KSUs, which is a key service unit. And it's um, electromechanical. It's about the size of a refrigerator. And that's how you actually switched the phone systems on a floor or, you know, multiple floors for a building. We replaced all those with a digital service unit or a DSU. And it was like the size of a, you know, maybe like the, you know, the, the paper towel dispenser, you know, in the bathroom. It's a little box in comparison. So as we transformed to that, these new technologies were, you know, very expensive when they first came out. Everybody wanted these new digital systems that were easier to maintain, much easier to program. So when you, you know, buy an office building or buy a floor of a building or whatever, if it came with that phone system, that was the bonus, right? You got this, this extra cherry on top. Well, half the time or more than half the time, they would get this phone system, but it was programmed for the previous tenant. So my first, I guess, quote unquote, hacking job was, you know, with permission, of course, to go break into the phone system and give them access to it so we could reprogram it. That's kind of how I got into the, I guess, hacking space. And of course, that was interesting. So I learned more and more about that and everything from hardware, moving jumpers and other passwords and, you know, flashing memory and these kinds of things. So I did a lot of that early on. And then uh, just kind of when you, you move from there, fast forward into things like data centers early centers, and they would you know, have these very expensive servers. And in some cases, it was the same thing. They would buy this equipment. They wouldn't have access. Could you get into it for us? Or it was the reverse. We stood everything up, and now we don't know why it's not working. 
and you'd find out, oh, that's because you're, you know, basically you've been hacked and you've got a bunch of, you know, pirate wares and porn and things on your server now. And, you know, back then you would only contact the API or anything. You just kind of tried to rebuild what you could for them and get them back in service. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't any formal training. You just kind of learned on the job back then. Yeah, and so this is all IT based, is not yet industrial. I want to, so I'm going to ask you where that yeah. sort of impacts eventually. It's IT based, then it's IT based yeah. cybersecurity, and you've got at yes. Portland uh, at Portland General Electric, your title has security in it for I think the first time in right. your career. Yeah, you yes. is that that is that where you're like security is what I'm what I'm doing? Yeah, at that point I decided to basically do that path. It was new. It was interesting. Uh, there wasn't a lot of people. It was a great idea for specialization, you know, because in early days it was like you could do database, you could do web, you could. There wasn't, yeah. you know, a really a much. We have a much more rich spectrum in terms of specialization now than we did back then. It was pretty limited, and you know, databases were interesting, but they weren't that interesting. And standard, you know, sysadmin stuff, it was interesting, but it wasn't that interesting. And security, since I'd already done some of that stuff and already figured out what the bad guys could do and how to stop most of those things, I thought, ah, eh, this is this is a great specialization. So why not? And you never look back, right? I mean, this is 22 years ago. Security is part of yeah. your life from, from that day forward. Yeah. yeah, now it's now it's part of the fabric. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with some of the milestones in your professional journey. Other ones we talked about today before we started, and, and um, we could spend a, a whole bunch of time on just even single some of those layers. Talk a little bit about where, you know, industrial cybersecurity comes into it. What's that first nexus? Yeah, interesting intersection of my biology background and my love of technology. Uh, I went to work for a large, when I moved to Oregon, I went to work for a very large nursery operation. So basically wholesale plants and retail plants. Because I had a background in biology, it was very easy for me to manage like a horticulture operation. So I got a job as basically what was known as a propagation manager. I made baby plants. That was about it. I've made lots and lots and lots of baby plants from various means, whether it was through seed or through, you know, um, cuttings and grafts and those kind of things. So I had a pretty good background there. And at the time, I had this massive, you know, giant area of land with all these greenhouses that I'm trying to have maximize the output. And I use technology to maximize the output. So I cut my teeth on SCADA and it was really in um, the horticultural and agricultural SCADA environment at the time. But it was everything from solar sensing, soil temperature and, and uh, you know, water sensing, uh, how to manage fan speeds and how much air could move out of a room during certain windows, ventilation. Um, you know, solar quality. Do I need to shade certain plants at certain times of day based on what they need? heating mats in the in the flooring to make sure that the temperatures are right for certain plants when they're growing. So all these different things. And it was either do it manually or automate it. And I basically went to the, the owner and I was like, I can do these things if you want me to try them. And he was like, that sounds fantastic. Do all those things. So I learned how to do all those things and kind of learned on the job a bunch of different, you know, different ladder logic and skater programming you know, how to take, you know, different elements and talk to a SCADA master and ultimately look for an overall kind of environmental management system for the entire. So it's kind of like early building management systems where they are now. They're a lot more sophisticated than the stuff I, you know, kind of glued together back then. Yeah. But what was, you know, my first kind of small environment of managing an entire area with multiple different things um, using different protocols and technologies and fell in yeah. love with the industrial stuff. And at that stage, security is not 
part of that consideration. Right? It was really about all that bringing that efficiency. It was the output. It was the reason to uh, to apply or put some of that technology in place. Was the were, were the business reasons and the efficiency reasons. Security wasn't probably part of the discussion, was it? Well, it, it, it wasn't part of the discussion. I built it in because I didn't want anybody else messing with my stuff. <laughs> and since I had a background in it, I added that in as the win. But it was more for you know for availability and reliability for my my equipment. You know. I think that, that I think yeah. that right there, it's interesting. I ask that question a lot of times, and usually the answer is no. But it's your formative early years. I think the the uh, the bulletin boards and the stuff going on in telecom very very early on, which we could go off on all that whole subject, phone freaking and things. Right. There were there were misuse cases well known way back then in the '80s. You had that in your head. So when you're designing this, you're, it wasn't uh, to keep a nation state out. It was just like I don't want somebody messing with this and changing changing anything, right? Or or taking advantage of it in some way that I didn't intend. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and the, and the nursery was, wasn't, I didn't live there, it was away from my house, and if something went wrong or things were happening, I had to modem in, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, connecting to my control system was something no one else could do. So I even had early access controls and other things. Yeah, so yeah, I, I designed it that way on purpose. Oh, that's cool. So I, I can see where this sort of, uh, sort of all, uh, all converges. And so um, security, senior information security consultant, uh, principal consultant, energy security practice at Breakwater, uh, senior information security consultant at Pacific Corp, then Western Electric uh, Electricity Coordinating Council. So talk about uh, WEC a little bit. You know, that's, you, you were in these roles and WEC's sort of a different, different animal. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting stint as a regulator for a while. Again, when I was the, the new guy at uh, Pacific Or, uh, it's a massive, you know, transmission organization. We got wind that uh, regulation was coming, and it, the writing was on the wall, right? I mean, the Presidential Decision Directive came out in the Clinton era in '98 to secure the infrastructures, and most of them kind of floundered around a little bit, trying to figure out what what does this mean? What do we do? How bad is it? You know, all these questions are still swirling around. Yeah. And of course, September 11th happened which changed the landscape for everybody. And they're like, we told you to secure these infrastructures. Now we clearly have bad people wanting to do bad things on our soil. So it was that freak out moment. Um, and we got wind from, you know, we're a very large transmission company. Of course, the Olympics were happening in our territory at the time as well. And we have other stories about that. But um, when we saw the writing on the wall, we knew these conversations were happening. Uh, there was what was known as the Critical Infrastructure Protection Advisory Group, and there's the big utilities were invited to participate in this because of our obvious coverage and service territory and, and importance to the nation uh, in various ways. So being the new guy, I got stuck on, hey, go figure out what this regulation is and figure out how to minimize the impact to us. You know, that was pretty much my mission, right? And I understand why. I mean, there's enough regulation going on in lots of different areas, and they're trying to do what they do. Uh, so I went and joined these early discussions and committees and then helped actually draft the first iterations of what was going to become the NERC SIP standards. And then later on, even some drafting into the actual SIP standards in their earlier versions. Uh, since I had done that as part of the utility and I'd written, you know, some of the language um, that our regulations were going to be and then implemented some of that at the utility, which is, you know, it's, it's a giant organization. It was a, a Herculean effort to try to put these new standards in. So I got the awesome experience of writing the language, then the another awesome experience of actually, what does this look like to put it in place at a, at a big utility? Well, when the opportunity came up, uh, the first 
um, region of NERC to stand up a compliance program for these standards with WEC. And of course, WEC is half of North America. They run from Canada to Mexico, pretty much everything west of the Rockies. So I thought, that sounds like a pretty interesting challenge. I've written it, I've implemented it, let's try auditing it. Why not? Let's see what this is like. So I was the first NERC-SIP auditor in the nation for the first NERC-SIP program, and then the other regions came online and started their programs, and they didn't have uh, experience, and I didn't have people. So I borrowed all the other auditors from the other regions, and we went around WEC performing the first audits on NERC-SIP, and I apologize for those early companies that had to endure the audits. We didn't know what we were doing, we were learning. I mean, we're literally, you know, cutting the trees and pulling the stumps and paving the road. It was it was challenging. Yeah, that time period, it's like you were like building the plane while flying it, right? I mean, which is is a bit of a challenge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were, you know, you jump off the cliff with a box of parts and build it before it lands. Yeah. You know? <laughs> before we hit the bottom, hopefully this thing has jets or, or props or something <laughs> propelling us forward. <laughs> right. Yeah, so we, we did that, and that was a great learning experience because I got to see, you know, what security looks like at all of these different companies in the Western region. And there's a lot of them, various different shapes and sizes and cooperatives and municipals and investor-owned utilities. And uh, I got to see the regulatory sausage being made on the inside and what it looks like to not just write these standards, but the harder part, honestly, is the enforcement and monitoring components. Because you can have you can have the crappiest standard in the hands of a really good regulator and it makes all the difference. But you can have the world's best possible written standard in the hands of a crappy regulator and man, all bets are off. It, yeah. That standard is useless at that point. I can see where today, where you are perfectly positioned for uh, your clients, because having been in use case, having been at writing and then drafting and then iterations, i.e. it wasn't perfect, then we evolving it and understanding the sort of evolution uh, and then being in auditing it and you know working in compliance, you know, more regulations are emerging. I, I, a lot of people are talking about, you know, NERC being sort of uh, maybe the most globally well-known of its type. Uh, it but it, it, now it's uh, it's sort of like what went before and what, you know, we're going to see other stuff, digital, you know, software bill of materials and supply chain issues and regulation. I mean, so you're in a, a really unique historical perspective bringing all that to the table today. Yeah, and it's been like 20 years because we were just doing some podcasts recently on the, the 20th anniversary of NERC-SIP because it started like in 2001. I mean, the first iterations of it came out as what was known as Appendix G of a FERC standard market design in late 2001. So its inception was a, over you know 20 years ago now. Yeah, so yeah. It, it can go out and buy a beer. Yeah, and that that's that, that's a whole you know that could be a whole podcast just just about this one you know uh, one piece for sure. Uh, you know, this is a probably good opportunity to ask me a question. Uh, ask you a question that uh, that some of our users could you know can benefit from. People ask they're either entering or want to enter our marketplace as a cybersecurity professional, or they're early in their career and there's still a lot of choices ahead of them. You know, how do I get part? You know, how do I how do I how do I break in? How do I get known? How do I get more experience? Um, yeah. And people have said uh, some speakers have said this, but not really explained how one goes about doing it. They say, oh, you know, join a standards body or get involved in the standard work. Maybe you're in a position to really say how someone could do that. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's also a really frustrating path. I mean, to be honest, it, it, it's not for everyone. And if you like um, details and you don't mind arguing about details ad nauseum 
for months on end, then the standards body is right for you. And it's not that that's a bad thing. We need that, right? We need to actually have those arguments and figure out what those words mean, what the meaning of is is. That's very important and crucial discussion. But if you don't like that, that might not be the path for you. <laughs> um, yeah. But that said, you know, early standards, when they're not at that, you know, very refined state or mature state, uh, getting in on something where it's new, that is where it's actually fun because you're not having those belabored conversations about, you know, the polish on the paint. You're actually yeah. talking about how is this going to look in a structural perspective, much less what the exterior and the paint job looks like, but what are the bones? And you're starting with that, you know, how do you plant the seeds to get it there? Can a person with, with lesser experience get involved in one of those? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not so much that you need to have like some, you know, crazy amount of expertise in these areas to do these things. You honestly just have to have an interest. And if you're willing to learn about, you know, whatever that standard is trying to do, whatever it's trying to standardize, then by all means, that's that's because you can you get a chance to innovate and help with something on the ground level and get it going forward from there. So you you no matter what, everybody there is going to be growing with that standard and learning with that standard as they, they put it out. So. You know, even if you're early on and you've got enough knowledge to get, you know, a you know, a foothold or a tiny bit of friction and get some traction on there, stick with it and, and learn more. The people in the room will teach you more. You will have an interest in learning more. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, like I say, it depends on your degree of interest. If you like that kind of argument and you want to refine something, join at that stage. But if you're if you want to get on the ground level, pick something that's interesting and find out how it's being standardized and, and, and start there. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Okay. I think that's. You know, I'm always looking for tiebacks, uh, and that's that's a good one. And I, I thought you'd have some interesting perspective on that. So, all the these years of the different bites of the of the regulatory apple, and I know this continues because uh, you know, Anfield Group uh, probably did a lot of work in the same area, if I remember right. But you you decide to start a company, and so talk a little bit about that. That's that entrepreneurship thing we were going to get to. What caused that to come to be? And and I know you did do Nurk SIP work there. Did you do other things too? Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, we. I, even when I came out of Energy Second Nonprofit, it was another entrepreneurial thing, but I wanted to uh, move into kind of the consulting space directly. And I figured I had enough experience. And honestly, you know, consulting is just, you know, you're, you're an outside person that says the same thing the people on the inside say, but you get paid more. You know, that's really in a nutshell all it is. But I, I figured I'd had enough experience in all the different areas to, to lend a hand and started doing mostly regulatory consulting. My buddy, Chris Humphreys, ex-regulator from Texas, uh, Stacy, an ex-regulator also from WAC. Uh, we started that company and did a lot of NERC SIP regulatory consulting. And the intersection with cybersecurity is always there. And I, you know, security and compliance are two very different things. There's many times you do things purely for a security approach because that's the right thing to do for security. And then you take off your security hat and you put on this like banana hat of compliance and do just those things purely for the sake of compliance. But they're they're different. And you know, organizations trying to find that I don't want to spend my money twice. So that's what we wanted to try to do is help them figure out if I spend it here, I get security and compliance at the same time as much as possible. Right. And it kind of depends. So did that and uh, started that company as a consulting firm and grew that one for a while and, uh, you know, did it again a few times. Well, yeah, I mean, you went right on. And after that, you started, uh, you were the founder or co-founder. I forget that, you know, you can uh, elaborate there for me on the Archer Energy Solutions. What was that about? Yeah. Same thing. Uh, you just started another firm to do the same thing. For me, it's when a company gets to a certain size and I'm all for success and, and profit and all of that. Uh, but when it gets to a certain size, I begin to lose touch with my staff, the people that work for me or with me. 
and as an executive or, or a leader, I want to know their spouses, their kids' birthdays. I want to take the best possible care of them I can because they're doing hard work. And I've seen too many security professionals burn out for thankless people that really don't respect what they do. And I just don't want to be another one of those. And I'm not saying these companies did that, right? But when they grow to a certain size and that the partners or whoever's in the firm wants to continue growing at that rate, that's fine. And I wish them the best of success. So I certainly, you know, will, I'll do my best to enable them to continue growing down that path. But myself with, with my style, I just want to have a smaller, smaller thing. So I, I build them, they grow to a certain size. I sell my part, I go start another small one. And if it, if it's lucky enough to be successful, then, then you know, lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah. You know, I, I get that. I, I, I've been an entrepreneur, um, you know, for all of my life, but a formal, like real entrepreneur, venture entrepreneur since 1997. And it's a different, at different phases, it's a different job. Um, not only what you're talking about, you're less intimate with more people. And I remember meeting some in the bathroom that worked for our company that I didn't even know them. And that was jarring. Um, but also your creative phase, those early years are, they're special, right? They're, they're like, like you said, in standards, there's the later standards work and then there's the early standards work. I think there's an analogy there. It's fresh and raw and you're creative. I love that too. I, I'm like you, the later it went or the more mature it gets, that sometimes, uh, that became clear to me over time that that should be some other sort of leader and that I liked the early formative stages much more. So that's what I hear you sort of, and, and hearing other parts of your story, that's sort of what speaks to me. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. That I, I kind of, I thrive for that environment. The stage where I am now in this latest iteration, my last firm, hopefully, it's my seventh company I've started. With this one, I'm gonna, I'll find, I'm gonna really work hard to find a way to keep it like this. I have no masters. I have no partners. I have no VC. It's really all on me. Uh, so I have no one else to blame. <laughs> and uh, that, that, you know, that's both frightening and entertaining. Enjoyable. And frightening. Two Fs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 no, makes, makes sense. It speaks, speaks uh, volumes to me. I, I get it uh, for for sure. And I, I think we, I know there are other business owners and entrepreneurs that, that listen to these podcasts, and that that'll resonate with them as well. You know, um, that the different stages of every company and venture calls on different quotients of things, and some of them we like, and some of them we don't, and that changes over time. And just recognizing that is a um, can be a real aha for anybody. Um, yeah. I think I've, I've spent enough time now and I'm in my fifties. I think I finally know what I want to do. Talk about energy sec. Uh, you, you know, that's a little yeah. bit of a different animal nonprofit. Um, how did that come to be? And uh, wh- how would you characterize the sort of that year? I mean, that's, that's a, I don't know, a decade um, story. Yeah. Yeah. It, again, back in 2001, a lot of things changed. Obviously uh, I was at Pacific or I was the new guy joined in August and the September 11th terrorist attack happened a month later or so many weeks later. And since I had SCADA experience, I was the SCADA lead and they said, hey, we're a massive transmission company. Oh, by the way, we have the Olympics in our territory coming up and we've got three letter agencies asking us what the heck we're doing about this and how we're gonna get the terrorists out of our power system. Go find out. <laughs> so uh, I went and found out, uh, did an enormous amount of work over a very short period of time and built some fantastic relationships with all of our neighboring utilities cop shops, fire stations, metal fab, rail companies, uh, you name it. And we built this information sharing system so that in the event that something bad did happen, we all knew each other face to face and we would be able to share information in ways that were frankly unprecedented at the time. Uh, So fast forward, Olympics happen, no terrorist attack, the light stayed on, 
everyone's kind of like, wow, you know, now that we can kind of drop our shoulders and rest a little bit, we, we like this. This is pretty cool. We're, we've never really opened and shared like this before. So we continued that. And that's really what the dawn of energy sec was. Uh, we gave it a name and then we started having kind of a, uh, because we during the you know leading up to the Olympics and even during we would have these meetings where we would kind of all converge on one utility or one company and they would you know foot the bill for lunch and everybody just kind of paid the, paid their way to get there and we'd all meet in a room lock the doors and just have our open and frank conversations it would never reach the light of day any other way so we did that and then we would have we kind of moved it up to quarterly meetings but everyone kind of heard about it and wanted in so we decided okay well we need to open the doors a little bit so we'll let vendors and govies show up once a year so that's we started the summit we would let others kind of join the the conversation then and then we had our quarterly meetings and it just grew from there uh eventually in 2010 we turned it into a full-fledged nonprofit. uh i became ceo for the nonprofit since i guess i was founder that kind of thing i left the regulator WEC, to go be ceo of energy sec in its earliest nonprofit stage Fast forward, we just we went for a grant with the Department of Energy to stand up the National Electric Sector Cybersecurity Organization and ran that for a while as EnergySec. And honestly, the nonprofit at that point had legs under it. It was operational. Uh, it had plenty of machinery. It was partnered with DOE. And I wanted to do something different. Um, the same theme coming up. It was created already. <laughs> yeah. It had legs. It was it was machinery, and it had you know a bunch of government ties that weren't entrepreneurial. Frankly, quite the opposite of entrepreneurial. It was very rigid and low moving and challenging in a lot of ways. I mean, DOE is fantastic for many things they do, but they are not entrepreneurial. We'll just put that. That's really not what they're known for. Um, lots of other great things. So yeah, I handed that over and uh, left the nonprofit and got into consulting. So, but uh, EnergySec has still done great things. It's now, you know, um, basically kind of a quasi-university. They do lots of training, workforce development, information sharing, and it's a, it's a great nonprofit and does good stuff. So, glad to see it got off on its feet and that it's it's still doing great things. Yeah, that's super. I mean, I think for any of us, uh, that's part of the legacy is did did I help create something and is it still alive and still useful today? And if it is 10, 20, 30 years later. That's a that's a validation. That's probably a better validation than any other one. It lives. <laughs> yeah, still alive, still going, still kicking. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super. And then uh, and you're now a year year plus into your latest uh, venture, Ampere. Um, and you know, I think before we you know wrap up, I have a few more questions I want to ask you. Just overall questions. What's the what's your vision for Ampere? Well, it's it's a small boutique firm. That's really kind of what I want to keep as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I certainly wish for great success, but I, I, I love the fact that it's nice, small boutique firm, just rock stars. I don't have a B team. I don't have anything else. You know, it just I call them smoke jumpers. And I, my pitch for when I bring them on is I'm going to fly or fly you over a raging inferno. I'm going to kick you out of the plane. You're going to land, put the fire out and find your way out. And if you can't do that, then you're not cut for this. <laughs> right. So those are the kind of people that I've got. Um, and it's. Uh, you know, we really do just industrial security consulting. So it's physical security, cybersecurity, and almost all of my folks, uh, other than my, you know, really technical people, uh, have some experience in either the regulatory components or actual utility operations experience in some way. So they, they've got a pair of dirty boots and a hard hat, and that kind of thing. They can walk into a substation and point out the equipment and, and that kind of thing. That, that's really this firm is to, to, to have that small boutique drop team that can do the work of 10 people, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's been fun. I mean, I'm a year into it and uh, I'm already at a great spot to be able to pick my clients. 
um, which is fantastic. If if you know if there's just not a good fit, then it's not a good fit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so very 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 fortunate to be in that position. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So as we sort of wrap things up, um, what if if you were sitting down to uh, young Patrick Miller 20, 30 years ago, what advice would you give him based on all that context and history? Great question. I would tell my earlier self to get into public speaking sooner because it's opened up so many more doors and mm. I've made so many more connections and it's gotten me free trips to conferences and I've seen the world. People eventually, you know, they may not, I, I don't have a speaker fee. So I'm really big about that. And I've had many other paid speakers tell me, I can't believe you don't have a speaker's fee. You pay my way. I, I feel like I, it's giving back and it should be done. Um, as long as they cover my airfare and hotel and stuff, just get me there. Uh, I'm happy to participate because I, I need to give back to the community. I have an amazing position where I am now and I'm extremely fortunate and I just want to put back into the community. So getting into that earlier would put me in an even better position at an earlier time uh, because it made so many good connections. I think that's another gold nugget, and that's that uh, idea of go out and get some. Could be joining Toastmasters. People ask, you know, how would I actually start? It isn't yeah. headlining a conference as a keynote speaker, right? You don't start there, but you can start. Um, I I, um, I spoke early on to any university entrepreneur group about entrepreneurship that would have me. I, of course, didn't charge anything, you know, and and they're like, yep, I'll do it. You know, they were young, they were enthusiastic, and they all had entrepreneurial ideas. And so I just spoke to, you know, any one of those incubators, accelerators, anybody want to talk about entrepreneurship. That was where I started many, many years ago, 20 years ago, or maybe more, and uh, and then built on that. And it's just similar to you. And and uh, I I think that's the advice, right? It's just just go find places. There are places, you know, community um, uh, chambers of commerce you know, where you yeah. can go speak for free. They're looking for speakers. Go do yeah. that. If you have any cybersecurity knowledge, of course, make sure it's good. Make sure it's fresh. It's real. You you know, at least know your stuff. People are starving for that information. I mean. Yeah whether it's, you know, your local Kiwanis club, I mean, pick, pick anything. They desperately need these kinds of things. And it helps you become a better person, a better speaker, more uh, relatable, better communicator in lots of ways. And honestly, I don't care how amazingly technical you are. If you can't communicate that, it's going to be far more challenging for you to be successful. So if you really want to exercise that next level of success, it's going to be getting down those communication skills. And there really is no better way than that absolutely frightening, white knuckle, painful experience of public speaking. <laughs> Just, you know, learn, get, get over it. And after, I still, to this day, walk on stage and get stage fright. And I've spoken, I can't tell you how many times, uh, but it still happens, right? And that's a good thing. I, I, don't, I don't ever want that feeling to go away, to be honest. Well, I think that's, was rock solid advice, which is is it it doesn't just build towards a future speaker role. It affects all dimensions, and uh, and we know we have a, we have a huge shortage of properly trained security people and security leaders. And there's been people promoted to leadership who don't have the communication skills, and they quickly find some frustrating friction with CIOs, CISOs, and boards because you have to be able to speak in a certain way and you may be a brilliant technologist but if you don't have that communication it's not because about speaking communication i think is the word you used that's crucial and that that is if there's one thing people somebody walk away from this podcast uh, session with you i think that's a big one is figure out a way to, to get more and more mastery around communication yeah it is it is absolutely key 
And what I did like about the public speaking angle, I think, is this the sweet spot for learning is you're going to speak to all different types of people. And they're going to give you, uh, in some cases, unsolicited feedback that you probably don't want to hear. Now, the next piece is be open to that feedback and understand where they're coming from and why. And they may be absolutely wrong. And honestly, that doesn't matter. You need to understand why they are wrong or if they're wrong and question that. But that process helps you understand your message was not received the way you expected it to be received. So how to tailor your ability to communicate to reach, you know, your audience, whatever that might be. So um, I, I couldn't move on or wrap this up if we didn't talk about something else that you are the founder, at least you, you, I could say the instigator of. And when you're talking yeah. about Energy Stack, you're talking about getting community together and getting communication together. And I know you have some opinions, which you aired uh, at a conference, and it became something, uh, you know, it's a, it's a living organism, the beer ISAC. So um, yeah. we might have people listening who don't know, might not know what an ISAC is. They're just, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of, what is this and how did it come about and sort of how did you how did you instigate that yeah dale peterson asked me at an s4 to talk about uh with some conversations we'd had prior about threat intel and information sharing and of course I, i'm the heretic in the room i say threat intel honestly i don't care i mean having been an operator of a system and an owner of a system i don't care what the adversary is, is who they are, what they're doing, get them off my system. I want my system back. So Threat Intel is really for those organizations that have this ridiculously high degree of maturity and refinement, then you can leverage Threat Intel. If you haven't locked the doors and windows, I don't give a crap about Threat Intel. Right? I'm aware, <laughs> I was attacking me, I'm aware, but I can't do anything about it. Right, so, you know, th and so I had those, uh, that was part of the rant. And the other part of the rant was about information sharing and, all of them have these various mechanisms, whether it's classified um, or even things like when, when Microsoft has to share, the, the thing is, this doesn't scale. So if Microsoft has to share a security brief or a security bulletin, it's gotta be readable by a technician and your grandma. I mean, that's insanely difficult to get a message across like that with any value, right? So the larger the audience, the lower the value. So we talked about or at least I was ranting about the fact that, you know, we've got all these different structures and everybody wants to try to find this holy grail of information sharing. And, you know, some organizations share, you know, because you voluntarily share it. And then some you're required to share it, which is not sharing. It's taking, right? This is a difference. So don't call it sharing if it's taking. So I was ranting about all these things and talking about how each one of these structures, even though it sucks, has value. And here's why. So even though it's it's terrible and it's kludgy and it's it's it doesn't fit well and it doesn't fit our our you know this utopian idea of information sharing and how everybody will just share and things will work together and we've got lollipops and we're strolling through a field hand in hand, um, it's it's messy and it's ugly and it's broken but it still works. However, the most effective means I've seen for sharing information is at events. After the event, when everyone's had a few beers and the stories start flying, and it's usually with the people that you're sitting with because you've known them for years, you trust them, it's your little circle of trust. So what I found is information travels faster, more efficiently, more effectively that way through these little circles of trust adjacent to other little circles of trust. And effectively what we have is, you know, an ISAC is an information sharing and analysis center often these quasi-government or standalone next to adjacent to government agencies uh, funded by the industry to help share this information. Often they're kind of a one-way street. You share information with them, they come back with these late information products, this kind of thing. So what we need is basically, we have, a, we have this information sharing structure 
one, we have a beer ISAC. You know, after the event, we all go have beers and information gets shared better than anything else I've ever seen. So by the time I got off stage after making a joke about, you know, calling it a beer ISAC, it had its own Twitter account and, and various other things from the audience. People just started this up. So what really just, it, you know, it turned into just giving something that already existed a name, uh, which sometimes that just needs to happen. You know, once you give it a name, it takes on a life of its own. So, yeah, I guess I'm the, I guess, founder instigator of Beer ISAC. And anyone can be Beer ISAC. It doesn't have, there's no way to be a member. It's just go to an event, find your friends and have a conversation. Invite people into the conversation that you, you might know a little bit, get to know them more, build that relationship, build that circle of trust and have them go do the same thing. And that way the community grows. Those circles of trust get better with, with more creative and unique bonds so that we actually create this bigger circle of professionals that know each other. And, you know, if something happens in any industry, I know who to call to find out what the heck's going on. And that's only because of, you know, Beer Isaac as, a, as an idea. I, I love it. As a gluten intolerant person, does bourbon Isaac also meet the same? Yeah, right. I get this question all the time. Honestly, it's anything. It doesn't have to be an alcohol. I mean, you know, it can be coffee, water, yeah. Yeah. lemonade. I don't care what it is. I mean, the main thing is it's getting together with those people and forming yeah. those relationships and that trust. Yeah, I oh, love it. Love it, love it, love it. Um, I, I think we're going to talk some more about that as far as that's so compatible with CSA's mission. Um, and, you know, we should support that. I have a page about the Beer Isaac to, to the degree that you want that. Um, and anyway, there, there's just more more there to probably talk about and unpack. Um, yeah, thank yeah. you for sharing just even, you know, a few nuggets of your journey. It's got a lot of parts and pieces to it. Not many people have been working on this problem as long as uh, as long as you have. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing it today. And thank you for, you know, frankly, our society needs to thank those of you that have been working this long because this is pretty critical stuff that we need to work on. So thank you for that, too. Awesome. Well, thanks in return for, for helping share our stories. I hope we can just get more people in to do to backfill us because we're all going to age out at some point and we need people yeah. to solve the harder problems coming forward because what we're looking at is it, it's ever changing. So we need more people to do this. Yeah. Definitely. So you know, that's, that's a question I like to ask at the very end. Um, what are, what do you what, do a little vision casting? What do you see? Uh, maybe what you're excited about in the future or what you see is one of the biggest challenges, you know, something just about the future uh, for this industry that might be, that you might share or reveal. Yeah, one of the, one of the more interesting ones I've been playing with lately, it, it came out of the telecom space. And, you know, you remember the days, God, maybe we're old enough, you might be as old as I am to remember this, where, you know, you had party lines, right? And rotary dial. Um, I'm on the phone already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, we had to pay for things like caller ID and call waiting. And these are the awesome new features, right? Long distance bills were outrageous. Today, you don't pay for that. You pay one bill and you have unlimited bandwidth, texting, you know, all the things you use to pay for. It's not because they became this really efficient, well-oiled machine and they can deliver all those services at roughly the same cost. It's because basically they're harvesting and selling patterns and data. That's it. They're making money and through other revenue streams so that they don't necessarily need to ask the customer for that bill, right? I've seen a lot of operational organizations are beginning to have the same kind of epiphany. And uh, I call it when data eats SCADA. It's the idea that you can use your operational data for other revenue streams. So we're we're replacing a lot of our analog stuff with digital stuff. In fact, we don't have a choice. You just can't buy the analog stuff anymore. It doesn't exist unless you buy it from some engineer on eBay, which we still do, but we don't talk about it. Um, all the new, all the new kit we buy is is digital. Everything digital generates a data stream, all of it. And we're getting new data 
that gives us far more visibility and enrichment of our operation, which is great. In addition to that, you can store all of that data and begin, there are now third-party companies that will take that data lake, right? Where we're, most of the time, you're not gonna be able to store all this. You're gonna farm it off to some cloud storage somewhere. And then these third-party analytical companies will take that data and they'll stack it with some AI or some ML or some other things, some just traditional methods. And they'll find interestingness in your data and create data products out of that historical operational data. So one of the examples that I, I've seen is um, I've got pull top transformers for a distribution power company. There's a mean time between failures of, we'll just say 20 years. Some reason these transformers are failing in 10. For some reason, these are going on to 30 with, with minimal maintenance. I don't know why. What's going on with my system? With the new sensing, we can actually see what the dynamic is in your power system to figure out why that's happening. Now, the manufacturer of these transformers doesn't really get operational data. What they get is failure mode when it failed. And they try to troubleshoot it and figure out why. And of course, there's only so much they can do because they're not seeing it in its historical state sure. over time. Got it to that position. And they're guessing in a lot of cases. So you can create one option out of your operational data is to sell that back to the transformer manufacturer and says, here's a history of these data points from the area where that transformer was over X amount of time, you might find these useful. For example, it's just one possible way to, uh, to sell that operational data in unique data products. So my expectation is, not in the not too distant future, we will find many of these industrial organizations will make as much or more money off of the data about their operation as they do from the operation itself. Well, that conjures up all sorts of things in my mind, and I know we, we're, we're running out of time. It, it means there's unintended consequences of all that, hence cybersecurity mm -hmm. concerns. Absolutely. You've shifted That's the picture. The risk picture moves out to the data as well, because yeah. if your revenue stream is also that data, you have a completely different model as well. Yeah. So your security landscape shifts and opens up because you don't lose what you had from your original security needs and, and issues, but you now have a bunch of new ones that are very different. The frontier just broke out or whatever. It's it's not. We're not trying to solve the same problem. The the, the space the scape is much bigger. Um, and it will be driven by, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a believer in, you know, that's a new example I, I hadn't uh, thought of, but I, I, there's other analogs. Those will drive. I mean, that's why we're evolving. There's reasons for it. And uh, and so, you know, saying, oh, what was us? Let's not do that. And the Luddite approach of let's disconnect. Let's have air gaps. You know, sorry, genie's out of the bottle. There's too much to gain. Not going to happen. How do we secure it? And how do we maybe design security to begin with, maybe before we, you know, earlier in the architecture, earlier in the design, that's maybe where we can make some progress, right? But it's not, it's not, it's not if, it's what, it's, it's not whether, it's like how, right? Um, yeah. and, and that's an interesting use case you're, you're bringing up. And the other thing that popped to mind was mathematicians and quants and uh, uh, people who would not necessarily have had a career in cybersecurity, they, they've got a, definitely an emerging career in cybersecurity. Yes. And the interesting problems arise, just one that I thought of, if an organization is making some profound amount of revenue off of this process, if a competitor were able to basically through various means, and this can even be through operational means, essentially poison their data, affecting the equipment in the field in ways that are not cyber, but physical effect to generate the data, to poison the data stream in the early onset that gets multiplied yeah. later on. So there are all these really interesting aspects to where you can go with this from a security perspective. So it is yeah. really a green of, of interestingness for me. And um, 
and that's that if I if I had something new that I'm playing with, that that's my fun space right now. Ah, I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. That's a cool uh, a cool thing that uh, has not come up before. Well, uh, I always like to end the show, Patrick, with uh, what uh, is called the Pavot questionnaire. I have borrowed it from a show. Uh, the Inside the Actor Studio, which I think may still be running, but it ran for many, many decades with the same host, James Lipton, who was the dean uh, uh, of uh, an acting school in New York. And he interviewed, introduced sort of all the famous actors and actresses uh, for decades. He interviewed them on the stage at the school, and then he ended the show with the Pavot questionnaire, which he borrowed from a French show before that. So this might have a 50-year legacy. It is word for word the same questions, as best as I uh, know and when I did my research. And so I liked that show, and, and uh, I love to end the show with that. If you're ready, I will ask you the the uh, the ending questionnaire. Yeah, I've, I've been in front of many different firing squads. Hit me. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite word? Spatula. What is your least favorite word? Moist. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Kayaking. What turns you off? Mean people. Yeah, intentionally your, malicious people. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? Fuck. It really conveys what? a message. You don't mis you don't misunderstand that one. It can be used in so many different ways as well. It's valuable. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, uh, food in the pan. What sound or noise do you hate? That's a tough one. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe like uh, loud traffic probably because I, I travel a lot and it makes it hard to sleep, yeah. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, I did have a great time doing horticulture. Yeah, I could probably do that, I could be a farmer. And what profession would you not like to do? Oh, there's a whole bunch of them, a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's a bunch of jobs I don't want. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any one particular that comes to mind, but yeah, there's a, there's, I, yeah, there's a lot of them I don't want to do. I don't. I think I'd hate to be like PR or maybe an attorney. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> Here's your paddle. <laughs> All right, Patrick Miller, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Ampere Industrial Security, longtime pioneer in this cybersecurity for industrial control system space. Uh, instructor, speaker, author, auditor. I mean, you, you name it. You've done it, and or and or are still doing it. Thank you for all your years of service and thank you for being on our show today. Oh, sincere thanks for having me. And I'm thank you for what you're doing to get more people into our field and, and help people like me. Because honestly, I only get to see farther by standing on the shoulders of giants. So give me more giants. All right, awesome. Stay safe, be well. I'll see you, uh, I'll see you at S4 in, uh, in a month. I'll see you soon.